from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Group headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, a conversation with San Francisco's chief resilience officer. The business of oceans catches a wave. How Disney is leaving no child left inside. And why climate change could make the world uninsurable. It's a matter of policy this week on 350. It's April 22nd, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here with Green Biz Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. Uh, happy Earth Day, Lauren, or as we call it here at Green Biz Group, Friday. Yes, your favorite non-holiday. <laughs> I have to say I was a little disappointed this year. There not too many super inspired pitches. Uh so we didn't we didn't do a whole lot on the website as you mentioned. We sort of do this thing every day anyway, but I will say my one favorite pitch was a sun-grown cannabis company that actually pointed out there was a much more important holiday this week called 420, at least for those of us in California. Yeah, well, uh that's the other kind of uh, Earth Day green thing that we probably don't need to be covering here. But, you know, this is, uh, you know, people people always assume that, you know, what are you doing for Earth Day, Joel, you know, or Lauren or, you know, whatever. And, you know, nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's just, first of all, I don't I usually have a lot to do on Earth Day. But second of all, we don't need a day to set aside to celebrate the earth this is what we do every day this is what we work on all the time so it's kind of just another day where we just keep pushing forward We were back on the Resilient Cities beat this week. This time it was our Verge Director of Engagement, Shauna Rappaport, who interviewed the Chief Resilience Officer of San Francisco. His name is Patrick Odellini. Uh, she caught up with him around the release of the Resilient San Francisco strategy, uh, which, as some of you might remember, is comes out just a couple weeks after Berkeley, neighboring Berkeley, California, released its own resilience strategy. The goal there being to sort of come up with a comprehensive way to tackle environmental risks, social risks, and economic risks, a topic we've been hearing more and more about. Yeah, and Patrick Odellini, the San Francisco CRO, as they're called, is really interesting because he was the first chief resilience officer appointed as part of this 100 Resilient Cities program that the Rockefeller Foundation kicked off a few years back. And the, the, that program is actually seeding uh, 100 cities with a chief resilience officer, actually paying their salary in most, if not all, cases for the first couple of years. And so Patrick has been around now longer than any of the any of the others, and I th- they they have all they have picked all hundred by now. So it's interesting that he to get his perspective this far in in terms of what it takes for a city to be resilient. Yeah, in San Francisco, I think people obviously think of, oh, when's the next big one? The next big earthquake going to happen? So earthquakes were definitely one of the big risks identified. There's a 76% chance that the Bay Area will experience a 7.0 magnitude earthquake in the next 30 years. So that's fantastic. (laughs) But also looking at interrelated concerns like infrastructure, how the heck all of your roads and bridges hold up in that social inequity, which has been a massive issue here with the tech boom in the region, uh, climate 
climate change and sea level rise, since it is the city on the bay, and then related to the social piece, unaffordability. Yeah, I think one of the key things to understand in all this is that resilience isn't just referring to disasters. Um, in, inequality, as you noted, is is a kind of thing that makes a city less resilient. If it's all all the you know poor people have to if people are driving you know two hours to get to their job in San Francisco because they can't afford to live you know within within fifty sixty miles. That makes the city less resilient in a, in a cultural, social way. And so there's a lot of components here. It's not just about recovering from the big one or a storm or, or something else. Yeah, Shauna actually gave us some great audio from her talk with Patrick. Here's what he had to say about what it means for San Francisco to be resilient and some of the turf wars that make that job a little bit tricky. In San Francisco, yes, are we seeing the effects of climate change? Absolutely. Are we concerned about sea level rise since we're surrounded by three sides on water? Absolutely. But I think one thing that we really noticed that was fundamentally different is San Francisco's resilience story has always been told through the lens of seismic risk. And it doesn't mean that it's a one-trick pony where we're really just looking at, at, at earthquakes. I think it's really more profound than that. It's, it's, yes, we're thinking about all these issues, but thinking about the fact that even with those issues, with those stresses today, that shock of an earthquake is right behind us or right in front of us, no matter which way we look at it. So that's something that we have to constantly have in the front of our minds when we're planning for uncertainty. You know, it surprised me, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but um, sometimes folks are so resistant to change because it, we're pushing them to an uncomfortable space. Uh, we're pushing them into a place that puts political capital at risk. We're putting, pushing them to a place that actually really requires bold leadership and making a stand on issues. And for the most part, that hasn't surprised me because I think we're a city that has always embraced bold change and bold vision. Um, however, it's really interesting when, when I saw some people thinking that, that they owned the space. You know, or, or that there was a there was a turf war happening. Uh, I've never run my shop that way. That's not how we operate. And and I think for us, it's it's you know more people at the table, the better. But it is really interesting. You see why there were problems in trying to implement this type of stuff ten years ago. Uh, personalities can conflict with one another, and, and this is this is small. This is the small game. When that happens, uh, you know, we we got to be able to step in and make make the make people understand the big picture and put away these kind of petty turf war issues that can happen either in, in between departments or they can happen with community groups. Um, people like to have their ownership on it. And I think trying to make sure we approach this in a very non-threatening way to people was, was probably one of the keys to our success. So our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel, uh, wrote a piece that was part of our State of Green Business Report called The Business of Oceans Catches a Wave. It's about this sort of this emerging blue economy, as it's being called, on how uh, we talk about fishing and mining and, and desal water desalination and all the things and ways that, that oceans become a revenue source for business. Uh, what's going on and how do you balance that with the, the severe ecological depletion that we're seeing in our fisheries and coral reefs and everything else? One of the interesting ways this is manifesting so far is uh, obviously sort of this nagging issue of ocean plastic and how much trash there is in large swaths of the ocean, particularly in the Pacific. And I know uh, some groups like McKinsey are just now starting to look at how concepts like the circular economy, this idea of better reusing materials and creating less waste could maybe make a dent in that problem. So that's one area I'm definitely watching. Yeah, and there was that statistic that... Uh... Uh, McKinsey came up with uh, that I, I can't remember if it was 2030 or 2040 or 2050. It doesn't really matter. 
but the, the statistic was that by that year there would be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Ugh, yeah, I know, I know. And then, of course, don't get me started on plastic fish. But there were a lot, whole bunch of different initiatives that that uh, Elsa wrote about around um, the the way that uh, first of all that the the gross maritime output, which is how we measure the the ocean economy, we're just learning how to do that, and uh, how we're starting to understand. Uh, some of the deep sea technologies that are going to, you know, be how we're learning to map the ocean floor and understand some of the technologies that come out of that. Um, there's just a lot going on, and I've been seeing stories, you know, almost every week around uh, working with fishermen to modify their gear in order to prevent un- unintended deaths of marine animals. So the whole industry, uh, you know, continued look at desalination in a in a drought-stricken world of how do we, you know, pull that. Uh, water out of the seas in 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 a way that uh, is not quite so energy intensive and polluting, and then just how, you know how we look at at fisheries, uh, the scallop fleet, uh, the uh, a whole number of different uh, fisheries are just being depleted, and and how, what what are the kinds of partnerships that need to happen in business with ecologists and communities to make sure that uh, both the communities and the oceans remain sustainable. Another facet of this is sort of the whole ocean cargo shipping network, whether you're thinking about companies like BMW, Ikea, Kohl's, big retailers, um, and then also the shipping incumbents like a Maersk or something like that. There's all sorts of stuff going on there. One BSR initiative that Elsa touched on is the Clean Cargo Working Group, and that includes some of the retailers I mentioned, like Ikea, Kohl's, Marks & Spencer. Um, they're working to improve the major trade routes going through the oceans, um, but I think there's also a lot of interesting stuff on the mo- mobility front. Some of the disruption we're seeing in the automotive market on land, people are starting to think about how to make these large-scale shipping vessels more efficient or if there's a way to sort of wean off some of the emissions. One of the interesting things about the Clean Cargo Working Group, Lauren, was that it was this how they got the the shipping, the, the ship owners together with their customers, you know, some of the companies you mentioned that do a lot of shipping. And it turns out that uh, that the, the customers weren't asking the same questions of the shippers and they just weren't communicating well. And so they came up with a unified questionnaire and some of the things that the that the cargo ship companies were doing that they were most proud of weren't even being asked and so part of it was just understanding uh how how to you know set the environmental goals for shipping shipping can be very polluting they, they use this dirty bunker fuel uh they they take water from one part of the world dump it somewhere else ballast water and it creates an, an uh, invasive species so there's a lot of issues that need to be dealt with here but like everything else, there's a significant business opportunity for those who do it well. From water to food, another story we had this week was from our senior writer, Barbara Grady, that looked at an Oxfam ranking of how companies in the food industry are doing on their supply chain sustainability. So they were looking at not only how companies treat land and sort of their farming operations, but also the impacts on the climate, sort of the transparency of their operations and how they treat their workers. Um, As might be expected, Unilever and Nestle were at the top of that list, but um, Joel, I heard you were also looking into this topic a little bit. Well, some of the companies, the study's called Behind the Brands, and the idea is to look at some of the big consumer brands or consumer brand companies. Unilever is not really a brand, they're a house of brands. and and how they're doing on these on these issues and you know it's always 
it always these sound definitive in terms of this, this company ranked first and second and third and and yet some of the when you know what's behind it or when you know about the world they're ranking it's always a little bit curious so for example Kellogg and Mars you know both of which are are, are really doing a lot of things and Mars in particular has almost become the gold standard in how they're looking at uh, sourcing uh, their their agricultural ingredients for among other things you know, ranked fifth, I think, fourth and fifth for Kellogg's and Mars. General Mills, again, doing a lot of leadership things, came out in the middle of the pack. So, you know, the question is, is, you know, is this definitive? And I, I think you can look at it either way. At least it's they've presumably treated them all, you know, apples to apples <laughs> uh, kind of uh, comparison. On the other hand, did they get them all right or did they get them all less than right? Right. And there was a great example of how that can go sort of less than right. Uh, A team from the Associated Press won a Pulitzer Prize this week for some uh, work they did looking into the seafood supply chain that found there are actually some very dark pockets. We don't really understand where fish comes from, especially uh, that coming from the Thai fisheries, which have less oversight. Um, So there are all these sorts of things that are very nuanced that you sort of have to take into account that aren't super easy to distill into a a top 10 list or a tidy chart. Still, I think it's it's helpful to have these because you know it, the questions that they're the criteria they're using to judge these is it becomes a great way for companies to to think about what they're doing and sometimes it allows companies to think about things that they hadn't been paying attention to and um, so it, it's all good but you know do we take these as the definitive look and should I buy this candy bar over that one I'm not so sure <laughs> paying a whole lot of attention to Earth Day this year, but something pretty important is happening today in New York City, and that is 155 countries expected to be signing the Paris Agreement out of the COP21 United Nations climate talks back in December, when 196 countries agreed to come together and work to keep global warming well below two degrees Celsius, the degree at which scientists warn there will be irreparable harm due to climate change. This week, I covered a bit of this in a piece on the five biggest shifts since the Paris climate talks, looking at things like nodes of activity around carbon pricing, with President Barack Obama proposing a $10 a barrel tax on oil in countries like China and Mexico, looking at putting a price on carbon. We also had a new chapter in the Coal Chronicles last week when Peabody Energy filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and some interesting new data that shows that emerging economies are actually those increasing their investment in clean energy at the fastest rate, specifically China investing $102.9 billion in clean energy last year, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Uh, Our senior writer Barbara Grady also tuned into a call this week from a couple of big business advocacy groups, we mean business in series, and joining us now is Barbara Grady. How's it going, Barbara? What did you learn? How are you, Lauren? 
Well, it was a really interesting call. It had a lot of people on it, and they forcefully spoke out of what good news this Paris Agreement is and that a lot has happened already in the six months since the agreement was reached and that this signing, though it's ceremonial, marks um, kind of the whole world coming together, including businesses. At the same time, Ceres had released a statement about all these companies in the U.S. that are asking for the clean power plan to be implemented. So that the reason those are tied together is the U.S. clean power plan is our country's commitment to the Paris Accord. I also saw some pretty striking numbers uh, in your report, specifically that the Paris Accord could represent a $13 trillion opportunity. Yeah. So We Mean Business released a report basically talking about that, that implementing all of the promises in the Paris Accord will unleash all this economic activity that basically adds up to $13.5 trillion. And that's just the energy component. There's still a lot more buildings and transportation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, we talked about this before after we came back from Paris, but, you know, this is the thing that made this COP different from all other COPs, which was that um, the conversation was, wasn't just about how, you know, how do we do this and can we afford to do it and all this stuff. It was about opportunity. It, the business events were all about this massive opportunity and what they all talked about is the low carbon economy. And so, uh, but $13 trillion, I mean, that's, you know, the U.S. economy is, I think, about $17 trillion annual. So this is a $13 trillion opportunity, almost as big as America itself. Uh, and that's bigger than I would have expected. Yeah, the even the people related to the report sounded surprised. Mm-hmm. Edward Cameron who's the head of policy for We Mean Business and also the managing director of BSR, just spoke about how huge that is. But then he said, look at it this way. When you add up the commitments, look at China alone. Their commitment to go to 20% renewable energy in their energy mix equals the entire U.S. energy sector. And then there's India that said it's going to get 40% of its energy from renewable sources in 15 years. I also heard another provocative quote from Edward Cameron, and that was that the world could become uninsurable if climate change continues down the path we're on. Yes, he was speaking about if the Paris Agreement hadn't been reached and we continued on the trajectory that we're on, scientists have said the average global temperatures would go up 4.8 Celsius by the end of the century. And he was saying, you know, his conversations with big insurance companies are that the world's not insured. Nothing is insurable once that kind of havoc happens with that temperature. Before the Paris Agreement was signed, we were on course for four degrees plus Celsius rises before the end of the century. And to put that into perspective, the CEO of AXA described that as an uninsurable world. He talked about that substantially driving up the cost of capital. On top of that, if you consider what a four degree Celsius world looks like, it basically means the basic crops that we depend upon for food cannot be grown. They cannot survive at that temperature. And as a consequence, we begin to see the breaking down of the food, beverage and agriculture sector. We begin to see the breaking down of livelihoods. We see an increase in the number and intensity of extreme weather events that impacts workers as well as installations and operations of businesses. So it's really important to bear in mind that before the Paris Agreement was signed, we were on course for unmanageable climate risks. Now, as Mindy has mentioned, we still have a lot of work to do, and the execution of Paris is critical. 
but we have given ourselves an opportunity to minimize and then manage the climate risks that remain, which is really important to bear in mind. Were there examples of things that individual companies are doing or ways they're looking at sort of these long-term issues posed by climate change? IKEA's chief sustainability officer, Steve Howard, was there, and he provided some really interesting perspective from a company viewpoint. So they not only decided to go 100% renewable, but they kind of revamped their product line a little bit to be philosophically in line with what they believe is a company. And so they're providing more sustainable products. And one of them being LED lighting, switched out its lighting line to only be LED. And he said it's turned into a great business for them with a really strong return on investment. So it just provided kind of the upbeat opportunity aspect of this. The language in Paris shifted. It went from previously climate change has been about cost sharing and burden sharing, which is not very attractive. And now it's about innovation, opportunity, and a better future. But uh, on uh, certainly across energy, but across other areas, um, business is now convinced that the solutions are there. This is a solvable problem with great technologies, products, and services that deliver overall value. But it requires long-term policy to drive that change at the pace and scale that we need. Fascinating. I know there's also been a lot of talk about sort of how IKEA could become a player in the solar market. A lot of talk about how they might sell different types of panels or things for directly to consumers. Uh, But Barbara Grady, senior writer, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Lauren. Take care. in for the last couple of weeks, you've probably heard us teasing an exciting event coming up in just a couple of months now, and that is Verge Hawaii. Joining us now to talk a little bit more about the program and why we're heading to the islands is Verge Program Director and Senior Analyst, Elaine Shea. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? So first of all, uh, the audience is probably somewhat familiar by now with uh, the annual Verge event that's been taking place in Silicon Valley, San Francisco the last couple of years, but why Hawaii this year? It's a good question. Um, actually, it's got an interesting story a- around what happened. So um, specifically, Hawaii State Energy Office has this annual conference called the Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit. They've been running it since, I think, 2008 or something. Um, and there were some people from Hawaii that have been big fans of Verge, especially at our global flagship event in the Bay Area. And in 2014, Mark Glick, who is the head of the State Energy Office in Hawaii, he attended our Verge San Francisco event in 2014. And he was just so enamored with what we were doing, really trying to move the needle, really bringing in diverse, multifaceted perspectives, and really trying to forward actual solutions. He said, um, it would be great if you guys could come to Hawaii. And we said, Hawaii? 
that sounds really fun, but what does that mean? And so eventually we worked through a lot of the kind of details and uh, we won the contract from the state energy office in Hawaii to run their Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit. So um, in 2016, obviously this June, and also next year, 2017, also late June, um, we are going to be Verge Hawaii Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit. So it is actually the first time we're ever doing a Verge event um, as part of a state energy office. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, and the state here, there's a very interesting tie-in because I know we reported mid last year when Hawaii sort of staked out this very progressive stance as the first state to do a legislative mandate for 100% renewable energy. So can you talk about that dynamic in all of this? Yeah, it's a pretty exciting time and um, very serendipitous in that we're taking over the Asia-Pacific Clean Energy Summit at a time when the governor just... <laughs> laid down this thing just last year um, related to a mandate for the state to be 100% uh, renewables um, for their electricity by 2045. Um, and a lot of stakeholders in the state of Hawaii, uh, private sector, public sector, all over, you know, community, et cetera, they don't really, or they're trying to figure out what the solutions are in order to meet that really aggressive mandate. So you mentioned that electricity is obviously central to Hawaii's goal, and we know that sort of these islands have an interesting dynamic where fuel imports and diesel imports are really, really expensive. So I would assume there's going to be a lot of talk about clean energy. What are some of the other topics we're going to get into? The biggest consumers and generators of energy are the military, um, the tourism, hospitality market, um, and then also sort of the mush market, you know, the municipalities, universities, hospitals. Um, mush market. I don't think schools. I've heard that acronym before. And I like schools. that. Right. So, I mean, generally, if you take those three big groups, um, that's most of the energy consumption and also now production um, within Hawaii. But in, in, in addition to that, I mean, there's not just impact on the grid, there's impact on the transportation sectors, as you say, ground and air. Because, you know, you think of tourism, a lot of aviation is also impacted by this. Legislation doesn't cover necessarily the fuel component of things because it's just electricity. So we are going to be discussing that at Verge Hawaii as well. We're talking about how to get to this renewables future faster holistically. So how does that impact disenfranchised communities? How does that uh, impact the economy? How does that impact other sectors, petroleum refineries, you know, the oil and gas industry, that kind of thing? Um, How does that affect land use? How does that affect water systems? Um, There's a lot of things that we have to think about as we move forward because you know, it's systemic. That's a lot. So how do you drill down um, in terms of the speakers that you're confirming and the specific topics that are going to be addressed? Well, you know, we work directly with this partnership with the state energy office. So we hone in on the topics that are going to be additive to what the state is seeking in terms of solutions. So for example, the first um, the first day we're having these half-day workshops. Um, some of them are more tutorials in terms of understanding, giving people a, a backgrounder on Hawaii's energy market um, and how power markets work, et cetera. But others are a lot more interactive in terms of you know working sessions, getting people's hands dirty um, related to trying to come up with implementation uh, paths for you know getting to a cleaner transportation system or any other aspect. In the actual program related to plenaries and breakout deep dives, um, you know, we're really getting to a number of different areas related to policy, um, grid, uh, you know, technology, various kinds of technologies, these nexus items like the water energy or ag energy nexus, you know, uh, finance, 
Um, and we're also talking about buildings and transportation impacts um, and looking at all different scales. So we're getting a diversity of, you know, not just the demographic is going to be diverse, but also the topics um, are all going to be interrelated, but have their own spin. And that's trying to basically just get people a fully formed picture of how to address these issues. Who are some of the speakers you're excited about? I know Hank Rogers, who was at Verge 2015, is sort of this eccentric billionaire who's big into clean energy. I'm excited to hear from him again, yeah. but who are you looking forward to? Yeah, we're pairing him with John Picard, who's also this very, um, you know, a very awesome um, entrepreneur in the clean technology space. He, he cut his teeth in the green building space. Um, but actually, we are engaging quite a few people, the key stakeholders generally in Hawaii, but also in Asia Pacific. So it's really exciting. Um, we have, you know, the head of HECO, we have the head of NextEra, which is, you know, right now they're going through a lot of um, contentious uh, discussions. So the utility and energy right. developer place. Right, yeah. exactly. We're also having um, a lot of public utility commissioners in Hawaii. Um, we're also going to have uh, a lot of utility executives. Um, in addition, we're having military executives, um, Denny Mc Dennis McGinn, um, Assistant Secretary of the Navy from D.C., as well as the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, Miranda Ballantyne, who actually used to be a Walmart executive. Hmm. Um, in addition, we're having, um, you know, a lot of other people related to the private sector. So Cindy Ortega, we're really excited about. She used to be the CFO of MGM, and now she's actually the Chief Sustainability Officer of MGM Resorts. They are doing some really interesting work because they have the second largest rooftop installation of solar in the world at mm -hmm. Mandalay Bay. And they are uh, actually uh, um, figured out the economics to um, essentially defe defect from the Nevada energy grid um, as a large private energy generator and consumer, that's a big deal. And so there are a lot of lessons from the private sector in terms of accelerating the clean energy economy that Hawaii can learn from. In addition, we've got um, the head of operations for uh, or for global operations for facilities um, at Hilton Worldwide, Randy Gaines. Um, he's going to be talking about how they green their portfolio um, from the inside out from a hospitality standpoint. So they're grabbing that constituency. Um, and then, you know, we have a lot of really fun other people like Paul Hawken, mm -hmm. who we love, um, from Project Drawdown. And we also um, are having um, other folks um, that are, uh, you know, very Hawaiian and um, very inspiring, uh, or specifically locals that are quite um, – they're kind of cultural leaders um, to sort of ground a lot of the discussions in uh, a lot of the – topics that you wouldn't necessarily think about but are really important in terms of stakeholder engagement and community engagement. Mm -hmm. You joked about it early on, but obviously this is uh, pretty much a dream destination for an event. I can speak for myself in that regard. Um, but so what are some of the other things that are be going to be going on on site? So uh, we are doing uh, yoga and Pilates um, as some pre-conference activities. We're definitely, we're in the process of um, arranging for, you know, a hike around um, some areas near the Hilton Hawaiian Village, which is where our event is in, in Honolulu. Um, and we're also, there are also some, it's great because the Hilton Hawaiian Village has this very enclosed, beautiful beach area. And so... It's actually one of the most ideal <laughs> locations related to, you know, going straight from your room to the beach um, and into the <laughs> water. It's kind of awesome. Um, and it's great because the Hilton Hawaiian Village is actually has a nice center of gravity. And so what's great is in it, um, 
you know, we're creating a space um, where everybody is going to be kind of gathered in a similar area so that there will be breathing room for serendipitous interactions and networking. And given that we have like the governor and utility executives and private sector executives and all these technical folks, and we're really diving deep into grid stability and utility of the future and like what does that mean for everything else, um, I think a lot of people are going to have a lot in common and some people are going to know each other, but a lot of people are going to be new. So we're really excited that, you know, we can create these areas where people can actually start working together to align. Mm -hmm. The last thing I wanted to ask you was sort of how you're thinking about transferability back to the the next the main flagship Verge event that we'll have in September, but also sort of other energy markets and other areas that are looking at sustainability improvements. Yeah. So um, really, we're hoping that um, when, and this is something that I really want to make sure it's a priority, that all of our Verge events are additive. So we're taking timely um, topics um, and really trying to elevate the things that people should understand. It should be on their radar and all that. And we're learning a lot from Hawaii in terms of working with the state energy office, but also a lot of the other stakeholders on the ground because Honestly, you know, when you work with uh, the government, there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of misalignment. And this mandate toward 100% renewables actually forces people to have to work together in a more efficient way, especially since it's such an aggressive mandate. And so there are lessons learned from just like, what are the collaboration models? You know, how do you finance this in a way that's efficient? Um, And then also to the really technical aspects of how do you make sure that things are reliable and that there's not this instability in the grid and what does that mean from a distributed assets like what's the aggregation of distributed energy resources and what should be the pricing signals and you know community renewables and where does that go in and in Hawaii we're talking about like ocean energy and wave and you know all that mm-hmm. stuff but we're also talking about you know hydrogen and you know different kinds of storage technologies and you know things that are a little bit unorthodox so we're bringing a lot of those learnings and those new things that are may seem nascent to the mainland but because they're moving in the same direction as a lot of other places um, across the US and the globe um, there are tons of replicable topics that we can really build on Great. Well, Verge Hawaii coming up June 21st through 23rd in Honolulu. Get more information by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page. Verge Program Director Elaine Shea, thank you very much. Thanks, Lauren. One of the regular features we do at GreenBiz is something we like to call how she leads. And that's looking at a leader, a female, you might be able to tell from the name, who is doing interesting stuff in the world of sustainable business. This week, our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel, wrote up an interview with the woman who leads sustainability efforts at Disney. How's it going, Elsa? Oh, pretty good. How about you? Good, good. So 
what what was the deal with this one? Who were you talking to and what were some of the things that are top of mind? Beth Stevens is Senior Vice President of Environmental Affairs at Disney Worldwide Services. Now, the Walt Disney Company, of course, is in the dream-making business, and Dreaming Big has brought the brand a long way since the black-and-white Mickey Mouse cartoons of the 1920s. Right now, Disney is the second-largest big media company in the world by revenue. Wow. Churning out movies. TV shows, toys, clothes, other consumer products, websites, and apps, not to mention its famous theme parks, and it's expanded even more in recent years by buying Lucasfilm and Star Wars. Um, How does such an iconic company not only tell a good sustainability story, but walk the talk? Well, Beth Stevens was telling me that Disney has some pretty solid, big, bold goals when it comes to sustainability. So it aims, for example, to slash emissions in half by 2020 from 2012 levels. It signed on to the White House American Business Act on Climate Pledge ahead of the making of the Paris Agreement, and it has even maintained an internal carbon price for many years, which is way ahead of many other corporations. It also partners regularly with groups like the Nature Conservancy on a bunch of projects. Not only that, but Beth Stevens sees all of this as part of corporate culture and history. She says Walt Disney himself was a pioneer of sorts when it came to environmental issues, producing some of the first nature documentaries, setting aside land for conservation around some of the properties. And she'll explain a lot of that in this clip. We have at Disney a a really long legacy of caring about nature and telling stories about nature. And this honestly goes all the way back to Walt himself. And if you think about it, the very first nature documentaries were the true life adventures that Walt produced. And, um, you know, since that time, boy, think about all the different ways that nature has really been, you know, the center of our storytelling, whether it's, you know, the Lion King or the Disney's Animal Kingdom theme park or the, you know, the newest sort of the contemporary version of the True Life Adventures, which is now our new Disney Nature film label. You know, in, in every one of those cases, I think that you know, our approach to inspiring people to care about nature is to immerse them in these wonderful stories and, you know, inspire them to care. So that's that's really what we've been doing for a long time. Cool. Well, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. I know we've covered when it comes to things like setting an internal carbon price, Microsoft is doing that, others are in that space. Obviously, lots of talk this week about sort of carbon emissions with the signing of the Paris Agreement happening in New York. Um, I'm curious, though, sort of if there's anything else you'd add about sort of Disney's business specifically. You mentioned that it's sort of this big media empire. Obviously, you associate them with sort of like families and kids. Um, what, What else do did you find out from Beth? Well, Beth is particularly passionate about animals. She spends almost 12 years working at the Disney Animal Kingdom theme park, and she talks about sharing this love of wildlife and the natural world with the next generation. So um, on our stage uh, at the Green Biz 16 event, she was talking about some of this and some of these efforts that Disney has to reach out to children and get them outside more, for example. You know, children right now are getting less time outside than in previous generations. It's really pretty sad, but um, she would like to get more kids out, not just to Disneyland or (laughs) Disney World, but to the U.S. national parks, for example. 
Interesting. So it's sort of a little bit of like a twist on we t- we hear a lot about sort of engaging employees or engaging consumers. This is sort of like a very specific part of the consumer market. Um, so did she elaborate at all on sort of what specifically they're doing in that area? Sure, you can hear in just a second. I always say to everybody, caring about nature starts with spending time in nature. And um, it's really critical to developing the next generation of environmental stewards. We put together some, some efforts to really focus on creating experiences for kids to connect with nature. And we even like have spent time, you know, being very clear about what that means and counting those experiences. And in fact, since 2012, we have helped more than 50 million kids and families connect with nature. And um, we do that both through um, creating programs in our own theme parks, creating experiences in our own theme parks, and through providing grants to organizations that will help to create experiences to to connect kids with nature. We also um, focus a lot on removing the barriers to kids connecting with nature. It's so interesting these days as you find out that kids are spending less and less time in nature that it's so important for caregivers to actually have some tools and resources to help them create great experiences for their kids in nature or help them even find great experiences. Um, And then, of course, we also think it's really important to raise awareness of the benefits um, that nature has uh, for kids. So, like, if you think about experiences, so examples, let me give you some examples, like at our theme parks. Disney's Animal Kingdom, you know, there are um, specific experiences at the uh, Kilimanjaro Safari Ride and specific experiences at Rafiki's Planet Watch that are very, very wonderful in terms of immersing kids in nature. We create a lot of one-on-one interactions with marine life at uh, the seas uh, with Nemo and friends at Epcot. And we've got also, you know, we've got a number of resorts that are in beautiful natural areas, like our cruise line uh, has a beautiful island called Castaway Key. And then, of course, we have a resort at Vero Beach, and we have a beautiful resort at Alani in Hawaii. And in all of those places, we have specific experiences where we helped to get kids connected with sea turtles or rays or other um, wildlife that's in the area. You know, and then, you know, I was talking about removing barriers. I'll give you an example of a great program that the Disney Conservation Fund um, has been funding, and that's through the National Park Foundation. They have a a program called um, Open Outdoors for Kids, and it's literally a program that helps get kids into national parks. And I mean, we're actually, you know, paying for buses to transport kids to national parks. These are kids who would otherwise never visit a national park that's actually right in their area. That's an example of a barrier. And that's something that we feel is really, really important. And those experiences can create lifelong memories for those kids and really start them down that that road of starting to care more about nature. Interesting. Yeah, I think it really gets to this whole issue of marketing around conservation, sort of how those two things interact. There are some groups like the Nature Conservancy, who we also had um, M. Sanjan from their organization was at Green Biz 16 back in February. And he talked about sort of this really 
uh, highly visible ad campaign they did with people like Reese Witherspoon and Harrison Ford. I think we even played an excerpt of it on a previous episode of the podcast. Um, But that was sort of like giving a voice to nature and sort of compelling consumers to sort of think about climate and and think about the environment and some of their actions. So interesting to hear that Disney is sort of playing in the same space, though in a different way. So check out the How She Leads story that Elsa wrote with Beth Stevens on greenbiz.com. And in the meantime, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this Earth Day week. You'll find the links to organizations, stories, and other things we've mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks again to our podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. You can subscribe to GreenBiz 350 through a variety of channels, including iTunes, and you'll find it every morning, on every Friday morning on GreenBiz.com and through our email newsletter, GreenBuzz. But by whatever means necessary, please join us again next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>